It's a warm, muggy afternoon in mid-September. A storm front has blown in off the North Atlantic, bringing with it heavy rain, thunder and lightning, the works. In the shadow of the elevated train tracks, first baseman C. Arnold Chick Gandil of the Chicago White Sox ambles along the bustling streets of Boston's Kenmore Square, turning up his collar, despite the heat, to protect himself from the deluge. Pausing for a moment on a corner, he glances at his watch. He's right on schedule and proceeds further down the block to the establishment he and his contact have agreed upon. The Hotel Buckminster, just a stone's throw away from Fenway Park, where the Red Sox play. As he opens the door, a flash of lightning momentarily illuminates the dark interior of the hotel restaurant, and a man at the counter raises his glass to him in salute. Gandil nods, knowing right away who he is. Joseph Sports Sullivan, a professional gambler, likely tied to the city's criminal underworld. Sidling up to the bar, the two shake hands and begin discussing the possibility of rigging the upcoming World Series, which is only three weeks away. While the specifics surrounding the genesis of the so-called Black Sox scandal are hazy at best and remain the subject of debate amongst historians, it's likely that a scenario similar to the one above played out in the days leading up to the 1919 World Series. This scandal, which rocked professional baseball to its core and whose effects can still be felt in the game today, stunned the nation and introduced legislation into Major League Baseball that has become standard across the board. What led up to the big fix of the 1919 World Series? Who were its key players and what were its consequences? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. There is no I in team. Many of us have heard this phrase before, whether it was in gym class, high school and college athletics, or even Little League or junior soccer. In essence, it's the collective efforts of everyone on a given team that leads to victory. It's a good and noble sentiment, one that ought to be remembered and emulated wherever sports are played, but what if a team suffers from a lack of cohesion? Such was the case with the Chicago White Sox in the late 1910s. The team's owner, a former major leaguer himself named Charles Comiskey, had, among other things, earned the reputation for being a bit of a miser. Despite having won the 1917 World Series, the Chicago White Sox was still one of the most severely underpaid teams in baseball. To make matters worse, a player in those days couldn't switch teams without first obtaining permission from their current team. Known as the reverse clause within a player's contract, and with no union at the time, they had little to no bargaining power and were more or less stuck on a team until they were either let go or they retired. Such a climate meant players were ripe for the taking by gamblers, bookies, and other criminal underworld types. By 1919, as the World Series loomed on the horizon, it was more than several White Sox players could stand, and a few of them began seeking extra and easy money through these illicit channels. Though the entire team was collectively fed up with Comiskey and his stinginess, some players were more readily willing to seek better pay than others. In fact, the White Sox clubhouse at the time was divided into two factions. The straight-laced clean Sox, who, as their name suggests, would never even consider dabbling in such shady dealings, and the Black Sox, who were willing to do whatever it took to receive the salary they felt they deserved deserved, and then some. Contemporary accounts reported that, quote, the two factions rarely spoke to each other on or off the field, unquote. While the Clean Sox went about their business, however, the Black Sox slowly began drawing up their plans. It all began on September 21st, 1919, three days after Chick Gandil's supposed meeting with Sports Sullivan in Boston, when a meeting of White Sox players was called to order in Gandil's own hotel room at the Ansonia Hotel in New York. Among those reportedly present were Gandil himself, the brains of this particular outfit, pitchers Eddie Seacote and Claude Lefty Williams, shortstop Charles Swede Reesberg, and outfielder Oscar Happy Felsch. Shortstop and third baseman Buck Weaver was also present, and though he never reaped the monetary benefits of the fix, he did nothing to stop it. In addition, utility infielder Fred 
McMullen received word of the proposed scandal and threatened to report it unless he was cut in. Power hitter shoeless Joe Jackson was approached as well, and while he would ultimately accept money from his conspirator teammates, his involvement in the fix's creation has never been proven. In the days following the meeting, those who had been in attendance volunteered to aid Sports Sullivan in the raising of the bribe money. Pitcher Sleepy Bill Burns, though not one of the eight players who cooked up the scheme, offered assistance as well. With the help of professional boxers A. Battelle and Bill Maharg, both of whom had mob connections, Burns approached several East Coast crime syndicates for guidance and assistance. The exact number involved isn't known to this day, but Attell later recalled that, quote, they not only sold the series, but they sold it wherever they could get a buck, unquote. In short, it's believed that several were in on the fix, perhaps the biggest name of which was none other than Arnold Rothstein, the notorious New York gangster. Whether he played a major part in the matter remains unknown, but it's almost certain that he had a hand in it, as he had several bookies under his influence. Prior to the World Series, said bookies and gamblers had the White Sox pegged against the Cincinnati Reds by a whopping 3-1. to one. However, as word of the scheme got out, the odds shifted as those in the know placed heaps of money on the underdog Reds instead. Soon, the general public began buzzing with rumors that certain White Sox players were in the deep pockets of many high-stakes gamblers. All of this led to a great deal of tension and anticipation, and on October 1st, Game 1 of the 1919 World Series began. From the start, it appeared that things would go smoothly for the Black Sox conspirators. For one of their more straight-laced teammates, pitcher Red Faber of the Clean Sox camp, was stricken with a bout of influenza and couldn't play. Therefore, the responsibility was instead bestowed upon Eddie Seacoat and Lefty Williams, two of the plotters. But as the aforementioned rumors reached the press box at Cincinnati's Redland Field, correspondent Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Herald and Examiner vowed to compare his notes with those of ex-New York Giants player-turned-sports writer Christopher Mathewson on any and all plays and players that the two felt were questionable. While Seacoat's first pitch had resulted in a strike, his second struck Red's leadoff hitter, Maury Rath, in the back, a signal that the Black Sox were willing to go through with the fix. In the immortal words of Sherlock Holmes, the game was afoot. From there, Seacoat proceeded to perform a series of unusual and uncharacteristic blunders from atop the mound, which only raised further suspicion from the press box. After all, the White Sox in those days had an impeccable winning record, and with each successive play, it became increasingly clearer that something was up. So it was that Game 1 resulted in a devastating 9-1 loss to the Reds. Even the New York Times took note of it in a headline the following day. Never before in the history of America's biggest baseball spectacle has a pennant-winning club received such a disastrous drubbing in an opening game, it read. But the faulty playing continued into Game 2 as well. It was pitcher Lefty Williams' turn on the mound, and he, too, kept up the pretense, granting the Reds a 4-2 win after walking three batters in a row. The White Sox's losing streak played out over the next few games. By October 6th, the series stood at 4-1 in Cincinnati's favor. Though everything was proceeding according to plan and schedule, it was at this time that the conspirators began growing frustrated and restless. Per their agreement with the various gamblers they'd employed in the fix, the players had arranged to receive their bribe money in five $20,000 installments following each losing game. However, the gamblers had failed to deliver the full amount, and, after game five, called the whole thing off and swore to play to win the remainder of the series. Over the ensuing two games, the White Sox made quite a comeback with 5-4 to four and 4-1 to one wins respectively, placing themselves back on the path to the championship. But dealing with gangsters in the criminal underworld naturally had its consequences. Threatening to back out of the deal, most of the conspirators later admitted that they and their families had received death threats from the various syndicates to whom they'd initially turned. Whether this was the cause or something else entirely remains a mystery, but the White Sox in turn ended up losing Game 8, thus granting the Cincinnati Reds what was then their first World Series win in baseball history. 
For months following the World Series, rumors persisted that the game had indeed been rigged. Kept in the public eye by none other than Hugh Fullerton of the Chicago Herald and Examiner, he would later go on to pen a famed article for the New York Evening World with a headline that read, Is Big League Baseball Being Run for Gamblers with Players in the Deal? White Sox owner Charles Comiskey, however, was quick to brush off such accusations, stating in an interview that he believed his players, quote, fought the battles of the recent World Series on the level, unquote. But while he himself, namely his stinginess, was the primary reason for the fix, there was a considerable amount of evidence to suggest that he knew more than he led on. In fact, Comiskey had been informed of a possible fix early on in the series, but did nothing about it for fear that the news of it would affect his business interests. Despite some coverage and speculation in the media, though, the 1919 World Series largely went unexamined for nearly a year. In fact, it was the rigging of a regular season game on August 31, 1920, between the Chicago Cubs and the Philadelphia Phillies that reopened the proverbial can of worms. When a grand jury convened to investigate that game, suspicion once again fell on the previous year's World Series, and a legal inquiry was launched. Bill Maharg, that selfsame boxer and part-time gambler who had been employed in the fix, no doubt feeling the heat of the impending investigation and suffering a guilty conscience, went public with his own account of his involvement. But whoever said no honor among thieves clearly didn't know the conspirators. With a particularly feverish bout of the guilty consciences spreading throughout the Black Sox camp like wildfire, pitcher Eddie Seco testified before said jury, at which time he broke down and confessed his own role in the scandal. I don't know why I did it, he sobbed. I needed the money. I had the wife and kids to think about. Star hitter Shoeless Joe Jackson was next to take the stand, admitting that he had accepted a sum of $5,000 from his fellow Black Sox. Over the ensuing three days, Lefty Williams and Oscar Felsch also caved and came clean. One by one, they dropped like flies. So it was that, in October of 1920, Gandil, Jackson, Williams, Felsch, Swede Reesberg, Buck Weaver, Fred McMullen, and Lefty Williams were all charged with nine counts of conspiracy. The media ridiculed and lambasted the eight Black Sox players at every turn throughout the course of their trial, held in June of 1921, notoriously proclaiming how the lot had, quote, sold out baseball, unquote. But in a strange turn of events, they were acquitted of all charges on August 2nd that same year, when all of the written records relating to their case mysteriously disappeared. It's believed that White Sox owner Charles Comiskey himself, along with the notorious gangster Arnold Rothstein ordered that the documents be stolen in an attempt at a cover-up. Regardless, the Black Sox were free men, at least in the eyes of the law. In the world of baseball, however, their careers, and essentially their lives, were over. Just one day after their acquittal, the newly appointed, as well as the first, Commissioner of Baseball, Judge Kennesaw Mountain Landis, permanently banned all eight players from the game. No player who throws a ball game, who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, who sits in conference with a bunch of crooked players and gamblers, will ever play professional baseball, regardless of the verdict of juries, he famously wrote. Though some of the hateful eight would later attempt to gain reinstatement into the big leagues, the commissioner ensured that they'd never be allowed anywhere near a professional stadium ever again. But while his decision helped restore the sport's tarnished image, it would also obscure several of the details surrounding the scandal. Here the phrase, the ravages of time, truly applies, as Chuck Gandil and a few of his fellow conspirators would later go on to publish contradicting accounts of what really happened in the days leading up to the 1919 World Series, obscuring and omitting several details that remain mysteries to this day. What is known, however, is that the scandal left an indelible mark on professional baseball, one whose effects and notoriety can still be seen and felt to the present day.
Thanks for listening. If you're a fellow American like me, then you know that summer's baseball season. I hope you enjoyed this titillating account of one of the biggest scandals not just in baseball, but in all of professional sports. What do you think really happened with the 1919 World Series? Do you have any theories or ideas of your own? Give me a follow on Instagram at historylovescompany. That's history underscore loves underscore company. And let me know in the comments section of this post. Do you enjoy history and wish to support me for future content? Then please consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and hit that support button, which will guide you to three monthly support plans that fit any and all budgets. Liking and sharing are big boosters as well, so please do so wherever you listen to your podcasts. Tune in next week as we venture back to the past with the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.